Hello and welcome to the Media Law Podcast with me, Colette Allen. Today I'm joined by Paul and Tom to discuss the latest in media law news, and there is a lot to discuss in relation to free speech, as we'll be addressing the open letter signed by 150 signatories against cancel culture in Harper's Magazine, and the House of Lords Committee campaign for misinformation legislation against big tech to be included in the online harms bill. We will also be discussing the ongoing libel case of Depp versus News Group newspapers and Sun editor Dan Wooten, which is now entering its second week in front of Mr Justice Nickel. And finally, we'll be discussing the latest figure to be cut from Twitter for expressing views against their policy, Katie Hopkins. So beginning with the open letter, because I think that's the most to kind of get our teeth stuck into. Um, this was signed by uh, campaign activists, academics, um, writers, including J.K. Rowling, Salman Rushdie, Margaret Atwood, uh, to name but few, which takes a stance against so-called cancel culture and its restriction on debate. The letter states that, quote, the free exchange of information and ideas, the lifeblood of a liberal society, is daily becoming more and more constrained. And this go on to say that they uphold the value of robust and even caustic counter-speech from all quarters. But it is now all too common to hear calls from swift and severe retribution in response to perceived transgressions of speech and thought. So, Tom and Paul, do you think there's much in this letter? Do you think that cancel culture is really hindering free speech? Or is this just a bunch of people who've been criticised recently on Twitter and don't like the fact that they're suddenly not as popular? I think that there are a number of distinct perspectives that can be read into the Harper's letter. And the big problem with the Harper's letter is it's so vague it could mean any or all of them. Um, For example, it could be taken as a basic call for a more civil tone of debate on Twitter. You know, at its most minimalist, that's what the letter might be. It might also be a call um, to treat individual lay members of the public, regular uh, regular individuals, with uh, uh, more respect and uh, to uh, draw attention to... Uh, a culture in which some of these people are fired from jobs, um, are excommunicated from social groups or whatever for expressing particular views, whether or not those views are actually abhorrent, but that go against the views of maybe their employer or their social circle or whatever. And no doubt we've seen over the last 10 years an increase in employers vetting uh, employees, social media profiles, we know this sort of thing happens. So it might well be um, a, a kind of protest letter against that kind of culture, uh, in which case I'd have uh, uh, quite a lot of sympathy with it. However, those are not the examples that are in quite vague terms given in the letter, um, uh, at least not 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 what we think those examples mean because of the signatories and there are plenty of people on that letter that i i don't know but there are plenty of uh, people on the letter that i have heard of and some of them uh, have hit the headlines in recent times notably of course jk rowling the most famous of them 
for um, saying some uh, rather controversial and to a number of people really quite offensive uh, things. So um, th- what this then raises is the question of, well, maybe the letter isn't just a call to treat people with more respect and not fire them from jobs for saying what they think on Twitter, but is a, a kind of pushback against um criticism that these rather famous and mostly wealthy authors have received for saying things that their fan base and which other members of the public have found very controversial and uh, and in some cases very offensive. Um, in which case you've got a group of rather privileged people complaining about um, criticism they received for ideas they've put out into the public domain. And that looks rather problematic and that perspective which you can equally read into the letter as any other is the one that's really receiving pushback and um, if anyone's seen it there's a a letter written in response to the Harper's One in a publication called The Objective um, which highlights um, uh, well it responds along those lines so against the privilege um, uh, of the authors yeah, just to, just to add to that, I think this letter requires us to think about free speech and what we mean by free speech. Now, the other way that the letter could be read is um, where it talks about a sort of institutional or state response to the uh, cancel culture uh, movement uh, where those, uh, where the state response is to, for example, deny academics tenure, uh, so a sort of soft um, disciplinary measure that might go unnoticed, uh, or a more um, transparent and open uh, academic response where uh, the institution dismisses uh, or breaks ties with the person who has said something contrary to uh, the uh, cancel culture movement. Um, now, if we're thinking of uh, free speech in purely um, vertical terms, the relationship between the individual and the state, um, and we can include universities within our definition of the state for these purposes, uh, then there is uh, a free speech problem here that uh, law recognizes. The unfortunate thing is that at more or less the same time as this letter was being made public, somewhere else in the um, world, David Starkey was making some uh, quite horrific statements um, which sort of ran along these lines. Horrific statements in which uh, he says he was trying to defend British history uh, from cancel culture Uh, and in his own words, used deplorably inflammatory words, um, which he says were spoken with awful clumsiness, but which uh, Saeed Javid uh, saw for what they were and said they were plainly racist. Now, as a response to what he said, um, Starkey's uh, connections with Cambridge University, with Fitzwilliam College in particular, uh, were cut immediately, along with his connections with Canterbury Christ Church University and the Mary Rose Trust. And his publisher later announced that they would no longer publish any books by him. So we have a situation here 
that looks like it's covered by the Harper's letter. We have someone who has made uh, a specific remark, a matter of four words, and has been dismissed as a consequence, and uh, everything uh, that he has worked for in his career, he says, has now been lost. In fact, his specific word, specifically he said that he had paid a heavy price for one offensive word with the loss of every distinction and honor acquired in a long career. Now, is the Harper's letter meant to protect someone like David Starkey? Or is it meant to exclude someone like David Starkey? In other words, is the Harper's letter to be understood as only protecting people who have good moral values, who are good liberals, and who are being treated uh, unfairly according to other good liberals with kind souls? Um, or is it actually to be taken literally as a defense of uh, the intolerant and the intolerable? Now, of course, this links, I think, neatly to what we've seen with Katie Hopkins being banned from Twitter. Now, I have no sympathy with Katie Hopkins being banned. I'm only surprised it's taken this long. As I've said in previous uh, podcasts, there are no free speech rights that the law would recognize when Twitter bans people, because we're talking here about horizontal relationships. I don't have uh, a duty to let you exercise your free speech rights in my home, for example. And for me, the analogy is the same with Twitter. Twitter has no obligation to allow people to exercise their free rights in its house, i.e. on its platform. But the difficulty is, if democratic participation is truly based upon the free exchange of views, some of which we disagree with, some of which we find offensive, then where are those views to be formulated and expressed? Are we saying that they can only be expressed in a kind of formal space, such as the town hall meeting? Or do we recognize the more pragmatic truth that people form their opinions in real spaces during the course of their lives. They acquire and they exchange opinions in the pub, with their friends, in the workplace, and online. Now, if we think there's something valuable about everyone having an opinion and being able to formulate their opinion, then perhaps the law does need to reconsider what protections do exist and should exist for people in the workplace, online, and outside. There's one thing there that I want to pick up on, Paul. That you are talking about the two options that the left is defending people either with good morals or people just in general to be able to speak their own rights. I, I mean, I thought that the whole point of the letter was claiming to protect free speech in general. It's not the people necessarily. It's the idea of having a debate and being able to have a debate online without it being shut down immediately and of course the irony is that jk rowling hasn't actually had a debate she's only said one side of her point for the past few years and so now she's jumping on this letter to defend free speech but she hasn't actually engaged in a debate um in the past year at all but it's it's not about the people is what i'm is what i'm trying to say is that's an interpretation that you got from it or did you think it was 
it was generally about the kind of people we're trying to defend. I think the difficulty is that uh, although it's talking about speech and the value of speech, it inevitably becomes about the value or the values that the people speaking hold. So, for example, I don't think that um, the letter is meant to say we should start listening seriously to what fascists have to say, for example. Um, democracy, we might think, is not working at the moment, but that doesn't mean, oh, why don't, why don't we try a, a dictatorship and just see how that works out. So I think the difficulty is that when we talk about speech and the value of allowing speech to be expressed so that we can have a debate, th there can't be a debate between a liberal and a fascist. How, how could there possibly be? Um, this is uh, Wittgenstein's example of the lion that speaks. We wouldn't understand that language. As a, as a liberal, I cannot be convinced by a fascist that there is something in fascism that I am missing. And likewise, I'm sure the fascist can't be convinced by the liberal that their views are abhorrent. So if we're talking about genuine debate in which there is exchange and reflection, then we must be talking about a specific kind of speech that's held by a specific kind of person. And the kind of person that the letter most strongly applies to is someone who is tolerant, is someone who believes in pluralism. The idea of regulation um, of these spaces leads nicely on to what the House of Lords Committee is uh, suggesting in terms of the online harms bill. So a select committee on democracy and digital technologies wants to give the broadcast regulator Ofcom power to sanction platforms like YouTube, Facebook, Google for misinformation. And this is in response to obviously all of the misinformation campaigns we've seen around COVID-19. And the committee wants these platforms to bear ultimate responsibility for the content that their algorithms promote, believing that these platforms should be held accountable for harmful content in the same way that other broadcasters are. Paul, I wondered, is this kind of part and parcel of that free and regulated press that you envision in your book? Yes and no. It depends entirely upon the basis on which the misinformation is uh, classified. There's different types of misinformation that we can have. We can have misinformation uh, about a person. Yep, so the idea that Hillary Clinton eats babies for breakfast and therefore wouldn't be a good president is uh, the sort of misinformation that I think is regulatable because it engages um, recognized legal rights. It engages uh, rights relating to defamation. It could engage rights relating to privacy um, as well. Where I struggle is the idea that we can regulate uh, what might be called epistemic information. So information that is um, functional to the formation of knowledge. I really struggle with the idea that there is someone out there who can say, yep, that's reliable information. Nope, that's not reliable information. Yep, you can see this. No, you can't see that. The difficulty that I have, and it might be more of a sort of theoretical difficulty rather than a practical one, but still it troubles me, is the idea that the state, or even a non-state body, 
can start riding roughshod over an individual's autonomy. So if a person chooses to believe what they read online because of the nature of the source, because it's online, because it appears in a kind of print form, then that strikes me as a matter uh, for them. What seems to be sort of underlying this idea of regulating misinformation or disinformation is that um, we can sort of circumvent this, this interference with autonomy by saying, okay, well, we're not actually doing anything to interfere with an individual recipient's um, understanding of the information. What we're really doing is punishing the bad intentions of the person who provided the information, yep, who provided the, the fake news, so that we can say, actually, this has nothing to do with the formation of knowledge. This is just about punishing bad people, people who want to subvert the democratic process or they want to see the world burn or whatever else. Well, that strikes me as problematic as well because I think that's going to involve obvious judgments being made that are peculiar to the decision maker. There is going to be a set of assumptions that Ofcom will have to apply consciously or subconsciously where they're saying, well, okay, this, this Russian outfit over here operating in Russia, well, that's got bad intentions, so we can shut down the information that it's providing because it's wrong. But this news organization here that runs a newspaper that we know likes to subvert things to their own ends, well, we won't say that they have bad intentions. We'll say that they're outside of the scope of this kind of regulation. Like that, to me, is problematic. What, what is the basis of these distinctions that you're making? Well, I think the distinctions that they're drawing on particularly are, you know, public health issues around coronavirus and the conspiracy theories that have come out of that, where there is an obvious right, like the right to life that you would be protecting in the same way as the right to reputation defamation is engaged when you have misinformation about an individual. Yeah, this is, this is true. The difficulty is, of course, that I think these judgments will still happen. So let me give you an example. Um, the um, anti-vax scandal, uh, when that happened and newspapers uh, spread the information that if you vaccinated your child against measles, mumps and rubella, you were increasing the chances of them being autistic. Well, that, that scientific proposition was later debunked, um, thoroughly debunked and proven to be a whole load of nonsense, but newspapers distributed the information. Well. Are we saying now that if that happened in the online world, those newspapers should be um, penalized for having spread that, that information? My difficulty is the kind of unprincipled approach that I think is going to be involved when these kind of decisions are made um, and these kind of processes are implemented. And, and just, just on that point about COVID as well, the other problem is that, and, and this is why I come back to the sort of anti-vaccination scandal, when those newspapers distributed that research about MMR and the links to autism, I don't believe that they were doing it with bad intentions. I believe they were doing it with good intentions, but it just so happened the expert knowledge on which it was based was wrong. 
Well, we have a situation here with COVID where we have lots of people trying to provide information to help people and we have other people who have bad intentions and are spreading conspiracy theories and we may even have people who actually believe in these conspiracy theories and actually think there is something about 5G that's problematic. So to, to then sort of get either a regulator or the online platform to start sifting out information and say, okay, well, th this information is wrong, this can't go out, this information might be right, it kind of looks right, but actually may, later it might turn, to be, turn out to be wrong. That's incredibly problematic. But it's, I mean, it's almost happening a little bit at the moment with the, the press gazettes doing a campaign against the infodemic. And they've been looking at you know, COVID-19 conspiracy theorists like David Icke and the platforms that they use London on like London Real, etc., which have made huge amounts of money off YouTube adverts and um, through promotion on Facebook in recent months, even though YouTube, Facebook, etc., have been claiming that they've been tackling misinformation. So there is... In, in that front, there, there's definitely a maliciousness there that the Press Gazette has thought appropriate to attack and YouTube and Facebook have since gone, um, you know, corrected because it was inappropriate. And I guess that's the kind of thing that a regulator could do because if a journalist can do it, why could a regulator not? Well, I think there's a difference here between the sort of moral space in which we, we all inhabit where we can make judgments on other people's moral actions, Yeah. And there is, uh, and those, and the consequences of those are moral. But there's a difference between that and regulation, in which moral judgments are made that then lead to legal consequences. In this case, fiscal consequences. You're going to be fined for having spread this misinformation. I mean, David Icke is a fantastic example, a brilliant example, because let's not forget, David Icke thinks that the world is run by lizards. Lizards who take the form of human beings and wear the skin of human beings. Now, if you're listening to what David Icke says, when you know that that is the basis of his belief, the ultimate basis of his belief, then I kind of think, what, what good can regulation actually do to reach the people who agree with David Icke? Yeah, I guess it's it's not necessarily changing those people's minds. It's just making sure that their the platform is reduced, so there's less monetary incentive in people coming up with the more crazy conspiracy theories possible, so that they can get followings and the kind of revenues that you were seeing from London Real and Ike's channels. I think you've happened upon part of the problem there, Colette, which is the money, right? Mm. This link between saying outrageous things on social media, uh, including conspiracy theories and the like, uh, and attracting revenue through advertising. Facebook, um, for example, YouTube, most, most obviously, perhaps, um, enable users uh, who put content out there to make sometimes significant sums of money from doing so. And we've talked about some of this on the podcast indirectly in the past. You know, a, a year or so ago, we had a podcast about YouTube families and the impact on the privacy rights of children there. And now we're here talking about 
um, fake news, which we've done before, misinformation, deliberate disinformation, conspiracy theories. Um, there is an incentive to produce this sort of content, and the incentive is financial. Um, uh, and and I, I I broadly agree with Paul uh, when he says you know this is something that it could be very very difficult to uh, regulate, um, because I I think it may well be that the content is not what needs to be directly regulated. Uh, if if there were controls on the advertising, if it was not possible for people to make large sums of money from producing outrageous content, then there would be less of an incentive to do so. So if there is to be a solution to this in the regulatory world, and like Paul, I'm skeptical that there can be, um, the kind of solution you'd have to look at, I think, would be an holistic one looked at the advertising and revenue streams of the content producers. Yeah, you see, I, I sort of, I still struggle with this because where would you stand in that case on astrology and horoscopes? For years, newspapers have carried adverts, have even endorsed through people like Mystic Meg the use of horoscopes. They have horoscope columns. Um, a large number of uh, people spend a lot of money consulting um, astrologers. Um, people who are going to predict the future, that that surely falls into the category of either misinformation or even disinformation, and it is well-funded in, in sort of uh, an, an isolated sort of sense. Um, the other aspect is, I think if you start on misinformation and disinformation along those lines, you quickly run into things like uh, UFOologists. Now, do, are we really saying that ufologists should also be put in the category of misinformation, disinformation? Um, people like Bob Lazar, who've made a fortune out of saying that Area 51 is actually the site of crash, crash spaceship, alien technology, etc., etc. I have no problem with um, the ufologists. I have no problem with the horoscopes. Uh, I mean, I, you're saying you've not checked your horoscope today, Paul? Uh, uh, you know. um, I've no great issue with it, um, but the, the problem is um, the, the very idea of regulating by content, and I think that's what your objection points up there, Paul, which is um, if you start trying to say, well, this sort of person is a malicious spreader of disinformation, this is disinformation, this is misinformation, and then, yeah, you do have to start saying, okay, well, we can't empirically prove astrology, so um, we're going to have to count as disinformation. Um, my, my, my point is that you know there's there all manner of wacky theories out there. Um, if you uh, if there were limits on the amount of revenue that could be gained by spreading them, there would be less incentive to spread the ones that are harmful. Um, and, and, and and that to me is the, we we didn't hear so much from the, you know, the far-right conspiracy theorists, the racist conspiracy theorists, before the social media platforms enabled them to do so. And many of them have uh, made a lot of money from ramping up 
the production of this particular sort of inf this disinformation from a position where once upon a time it, it did not profit them to do so. Um, and that, I think, would have to be part of uh, a, a regime of regulations. Look at that rather than focusing exclusively on the content. I'm not at all convinced it, it is practically possible to do this. But I think if we're going to have a sensible conversation about it, we can't ignore the fact that at the moment, the producers of this content are heavily incentivized to go on producing it and to produce it in as widespread and as controversial as headline grabbing a fashion as possible. Well, speaking of headline grabbing, let's just move on to the final point to discuss today. And that is, of course, the ongoing debt case against News Group Limited. Um, so briefly outline the case. Obviously, there's not that much we can discuss because it's, it's still happening. We have no judgment. But um, this is the 57-year-old Pirates of the Caribbean star Johnny Depp suing News Group newspapers and its executive editor, Dan Wooden, over an article published in 2018 that referred to Depp as a wife beater. Um, the Sun is arguing truth, and its defense relies on 14 alleged incidents of domestic violence. And they've called in Amber Heard, who is Johnny Depp's ex-wife, um, and also the defendant in a libel suit uh, initiated by Mr. Depp in America at the moment, to um, be a, a key witness for them. And I mean, if I'm correct in saying, the Sun's got 14 alleged incidents, would they, they only need one of them to be taken as truth, right, in order for the, the sting of the article to be um, acceptable? That's a very interesting doctrinal question there, Colette, and uh, hopefully uh, listeners will not mistake my academic interest in this for um, uh, a lack of caring. But um, the there is an interesting academic doctrinal question, which is how many incidents of domestic violence does it take to make a wife beater? Um, are you a wife beater? if you are violent on one occasion towards your spouse? Or does that particular phraseology suggest an habitual offender, in which case you would need to demonstrate a number of incidents in order for it to be uh, proven true to meet the sting of the libel? Um, ordinarily... I would have thought that if you were to label a person, oh, I don't know, call somebody a thief or a racist, it's probably not enough to demonstrate that they stole something once or they once said something racist. Um, I would have thought you would need enough incidents to show a course of conduct, a, a pattern. Um, so in pleading 14 incidents... I think, you know, 14 would be sufficient. The question is how many out of the 14 are going to need to be proven. Um, I'd be surprised if the court found that Depp was in fact a wife beater and thus that there was a defence based on a single one of these incidents, uh, which I haven't read the details of, um, being proven true. If several can be proven true... Uh, then I think you know, Depp would be on dicey ground. Where's well, not the sting of 
being referred to as a wife beater, the fact that you're violent towards your partner, and domestic abuse obviously does carry huge reputational damage, I would have thought that even one is enough to damage your reputation and prove, and thus prove that um, they were they were justified in making the claim in the first place. It is an interesting question, and I I, I, I genuinely would uh, uh, will uh, want to read the judgment on on this when when we get a section on meaning. Um, have we now reached the point where a wife beater is a person who? slaps their spouse once not that i wish to downplay the seriousness of that by the way you know to slap anyone is unacceptably violent behavior and should not be condoned but with that in mind and looking at say the me too movement have we looked at a phrase have, has that phrase now changed its meaning because I, I, my instinct is for a long time the phrase wife beater has meant a person who is habitually and regularly violent towards their spouse, rather than a person who assaults their spouse as a one-off. Um, maybe that phrase has changed its meaning. If so, it'll be fascinating to see that ingrained in precedent. Paul, what do you think on that? I think you're absolutely right, Tom. I think that this is uh, one of the difficulties that um, the law of defamation has made a speciality out of, which is trying to figure out meaning by not actually figuring out meaning, but just saying this is the meaning as if there were no kind of discussion about it. So I've always thought in defamation law, the courts sort of engage in a kind of gaslighting the best example of that, of course, is Stocker and Stocker, which we talked about for a very long time. But, but Stocker and Stocker kind of applies here in the sense that that was also an instance of uh, purported domestic violence. But the question was how far the domestic violence went. Was it a serious attempt to kill someone or did it simply imply hands around the neck? Personally, I don't think the court is going to engage much on meaning because I don't think it ever does engage much on meaning. We saw what happened recently in a different case where a judge tried to consult the dictionary. Uh, or in fact, was that Stocker and Stocker where the judge tried to consult the dictionary to work out what the meaning was? There's definitely a dictionary definition in Stocker. Yeah. Uh, and the, the appellate courts didn't like that um, so I, I think I think there is an academic discussion to be had about just what meaning means as far as judges are concerned I have a, another question that's less legal and more um, kind of the practical side of the way that these cases come out if the sons put more effort into proving the truth for this case than they did for the original article can that be counted against them by the judge? Not for the basis of a truth defence, but do you mean for a Section 4 public interest defence? Uh, I don't know if they're... They pro I don't know if they are arguing Section 4. I think they've just relied on truth. But I guess in, in, in whatever form, is that taken into account the fact that they probably have worked a lot harder at getting all of the information together now for a three-week trial than they did when they casually slapped on wife beater in the um, original article's title. 
I doubt it, but I really like that as an idea. Um, it wouldn't make any difference to the defense of truth, because either one proves the sting of the libel or one does not. That's the end of the matter. Where it could potentially make a difference, were an, uh, an appellate-level court ever inclined to accept the argument, which is where it would need to be made, is under Section 4, the public interest defense. Does the uh, defendant have a reasonable belief that publication of the allegation is in the public interest? Um, and we've talked in recent times on the podcast about just how much effort defendant needs to go to to try to establish the veracity of the allegation before publishing it in order for them to be said to have had a reasonable belief that publishing it was in the public interest, which is always a mouthful. Um, thanks to Parliament for that one. Um, but it, the point that you make is a really interesting one. If by having gone and done so much additional research now, the defendant in effect is demonstrating that they could have done more before, um, does that undermine their claims to have had a reasonable belief in publishing uh, that publishing the article at the time was in the public interest? Um, I doubt that a court is going to say that. I would have thought that the judicial response you would get would be something along these lines. Um, taking into account editorial discretion and uh, the uh, discretion in encompassing uh, editorial decisions as to how to allocate resources when putting together stories, it is not unreasonable um, to allocate only X amount of resources when formulating a story, but it might well be uh, reasonable to allocate significantly more when defending against potentially multi-million pound litigation in order to ensure that editorial discretion remains at the forefront of Section 4 type defences as it was under Reynolds. When you look at things like the flood case, uh, I realise non-expert listeners won't quite be up to speed on that, but I won't go into it now in, in, in detail because it would take too long. Um, I think you'd get an editorial discretion type defence, which is in part inspired by Article 10 of the European Convention on Human Rights, the free expression right, and uh, the court's desire to ensure that newspapers uh, have the capacity to go on publishing information. The, the argument that will go against it is, well, maybe we can now afford to go and do all this amount of research into Johnny Depp because he sued us, but if we put that amount of resources into every story that we covered, we would never get anywhere. So I think that that is ultimately where the courts would come down. But I I like the thinking in, in, uh, in your suggestion. It could be argued. I don't think it would win, but I think it could be argued. It would be fun. Paul, is there anything you want to add on to the deck? Or... Yeah, I, now you've mentioned it, I'm sort of sat here thinking, I wonder why they didn't plead Section 4 in addition to Section 2. Um, is this the type of thing that you could say was in the public interest to know? You know, it's in, in privacy, we see these kind of arguments run and they succeed. Why not in defamation? I mean, I, I wonder whether they could if they weren't necessarily doing an expose in this article about him being a wife beater. This was already quite common knowledge that um, Amber Heard had issued a restraining order and in that restraining order had mentioned the fact that he was abusive. 
So I wonder whether they could say it was in the public interest when it's not like they were the ones telling the public for the first. Mm. Yeah, perhaps. I just think they've wanted to go sensational. They've gone for the nuclear option. Um, they they want to. They they you know it's it's all or all or nothing on demonstrating the not just that Depp is a wife beater, which is what they want to demonstrate, but also to fire a warning shot across the bows of other celebrities inclined to sue them, uh, that uh, if you sue us, we will undertake exhaustive investigations and we will prove true what we have said about you. Um, it's a, it's a high-risk strategy, um, but if it works, then uh, news group newspapers will feel pretty pleased with themselves. Well, it'll be an interesting one to watch unfold. It will, um, and one definitely to take a good look at the uh, judgment in when we uh, get that, which I imagine will take quite some time. The case will conclude fairly shortly, but um, it will take weeks, probably a number of months until we get a judgment. Um, but it will certainly be something we should return to in due course. One for next season. Yes. Okay, well, I think that's all we've got time for today. Thank you very much, Tom and Paul. And as ever, please follow us on social media at Media Law Podcast. Thanks very much. Bye.